Hello and welcome to Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love. I am a social psychologist and I research friendships that cross social divides. I'm recording this podcast at a time when many of you might be worrying that our world is getting more and more divided. Rifts within societies are widening, dialogue is dying, and we all seem to be stuck in ever more tightly sealed echo chambers. Well, my aim with this podcast is to show you that all is not lost. There is a lot that you and I can do to build bridges between those parts of society that feel increasingly far apart. In fact, many people around the world, and in really ingenious ways, are doing just that kind of bridge building already. This podcast features conversations with them. Today's episode is about what it takes to overcome barriers to mother and baby healthcare in rural India, why successful maternal healthcare involves mental health provisions, and what a young researcher learned when he returned to the village where his grandmother died as a consequence of childbirth. So this is the this is the interesting escape from poverty. There's a really good developmental economics book by Angus Deaton called The Great Escape, right? It's like named after that movie, The Great Escape. <laughs> But it's about escaping poverty. And one of the, the best ways, and Amartya Sen writes about this too, one of the best ways of escaping poverty is through the mother, right? So if the mother's educated and healthy, the kids are inevitably educated and healthy. And, you know, first of all, if the mother's alive, then the children are better off. And so if you can create programs and create societies that actually value the health and well-being of a mother, then there there are effects around the mother that then can actually influence society. That was Anil Brar, a medical anthropologist with a background in biology and international development, but most significantly for the purposes of this conversation, the COO and co-founder of Mata Jaikur, a maternal health clinic in Rajasthan. I feel very privileged to call Anil a friend, and he was in fact my first ever podcast guest. You will see that this episode is longer than my usual conversations, and that I have changed the format slightly since these early beginnings. Nevertheless, I wanted to share with you our conversation in its entirety. I think Anil is a thoughtful and engaging communicator about global healthcare interventions and he talks candidly about the many humbling lessons he has learned while working in India. His work also has the potential to send ripple effects across a healthcare system that struggles to care for a population of over 1.3 billion people. Please enjoy our conversation about the origins and workings of a clinic for maternal health set in rural India. You have a very varied background, so you have training in biology and political science and in global health. And you have used all these various skills in order to set up a project that you and your uncle, together with a community, are running in rural India in the northwest of India, in the state Rajasthan. Mm -hmm. You're the COO of the Mata Jaikaur MJK Women's Health Clinic. And I would like to invite you first to describe to me a little bit what sort of work you're doing there. Uh, and then we can we can delve into the motivations and the, the wider effect of that sort of project. Sure. 
thank you for talking to me and thinking I'm interesting. You are. <laughs> <laughs> the work is more interesting than I am. So I'll talk about the work. So back in 2010, I just graduated from my previous master's degree, which was in political science at McGill. And after that, I decided that political science degree was done because I had an interest in international development and I wanted to work in international development. And I thought from a background of biology, I thought that political science would be a good way to think about the social world and, and how inequality manifests and how to, how to deal with it. I don't know if I actually learned how to do that, but you know, it, was a, it was a start. So I studied political science focusing on developing countries because that's you know, where I felt the issues were. A lot of this has changed since then. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to post my master's degree, get a job with a part of the, the Canadian government that does international development work called the International Development Research Centre. So they use Canadian foreign development funds to do development research. Yeah, so I worked there for like a year and a half. I moved to Ottawa in government town. And, you know, there's a, a bit of it that was, well, there's a big learning curve, but a lot of the learning curve was with regards to things that I didn't really care about, mm -hmm. right? Like um, how to operate in a bureaucracy in Canada, whereas my real interest was in problems of inequality and development in other parts of the world. So that part was a little bit dissatisfying, but you know, I, it was a it was my first sort of office job, and I, I learned a lot about myself and and what's important to me. Thankfully, by the end of that year, uh, my uncle from Calgary, who's a home builder in Calgary and a land developer, so he was often traveling from Calgary, where I'm from, in the west to Ottawa to meet with government people, and so he came to Ottawa, and I was in Ottawa. And he sat me down and he said, what are you doing after this? And what did you study? And I kind of, you know, caught him up on my life. Were you close before then? Very close. Yeah. He's like a second father to me. Um, so yeah, very, very close. But he still didn't really know what I studied, but he kind of had an idea. It's quite common. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think when he realized that he got some sort of inkling that I was interested in what I was interested in, that I might be useful for a vision that he had which was uh, starting a maternal health clinic in the village that he was born in, back yeah. in India. So let's talk a little bit about, mm. about him and about that background, because your family yeah. comes from all over the, the world, really. We, we talked about it previously, and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the way your family um, came from, from Hong Kong and, and from Punjab to Canada is quite tied up with world history and, and big changes like mm -hmm. like Second World War, like partition in India. So tell me a little bit about him and his experience in particular in relation to his mother and his grandmother. Yeah, so so my my uncle, this uncle, is the youngest of ten siblings. And the motivation for this maternal health clinic comes from his personal experience. And sort of a dream that he had probably for at least at the point that we met in 2010, probably like the previous 20 years. So it had been a while since he's been thinking about this. And what he wanted to do was build a clinic in the village in honor of his mother, um, my grandmother, who died in childbirth with him. Um, so, you know, I, you don't really think about this stuff when you grow up, but... Uh, as I was growing up, I didn't think too much about 
my grandmother, I never knew her. Um, I just only heard stories about her. But I think as you get older, you realize the context of things and where people come from. And, you know, my, I realize that I have, you know, in, in addition to my mom, nine other uncles and aunts. And they all come from the same woman. And she delivered all, well, nine of the, out of the ten of them in this particular village, but all ten of them in a rural setting in a situation where she probably didn't have access to very much care. Mm. And, you know, the, the realistic thing is that she gave birth and died because of pregnancy and childbirth. Yeah. So with the, the birth of my uncle, this uncle, uh, I think she died within a month from what, I, what we suspect was peripheral sepsis, so basically an, an infection due to delivering in an unhygienic yeah. condition and um, having, not having access to antibiotics or just very basic medical care that still would have been basic at that time, right, in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. Is con- that continues to be a huge problem in, in many rural parts of the world. So right. you say that 2.6 million babies die before their first birthday and mm-hmm. 830 women every day from childbirth related complications around the world so that's a huge huge amount of of loss that has ripple effects deep into communities right it's not just that it's a big number right it's that it's a it's a preventable number completely right so the medical care that was that that was available at the time that my grandmother died is a is obviously available now and and better yeah but people still die of these very basic things. Yeah. So if you look at, I mean, the, the numbers around maternal death are something like, it's close to 200 deaths per 100,000 live births yeah. is yeah. the maternal mortality rate in the world right now. Yeah, it's two women per thousand. Right. And um, so, you know, that's like, it's like a plane crash every day kind of thing. And certain areas have a higher rate and certain areas have a lower rate. And this region of Rajasthan where my, gra- where my grandmother lived still has among the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Yeah. Things are improving, but I think the biggest moral tragedy is that virtually all of these are preventable very easily. It's just a, a decision that we haven't brought, you know, modern medicine that is like has been modern medicine for a long time to these locations. Mm-hmm. So I think the tragedy that really struck my uncle in this conversation and, and the thing that really motivated him to want to start this project was that people are still dying of childbirth in the place that he was born, you know, at that time over 50 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had experienced, because he was then taken in by his, his grandmother, right. he had experienced firsthand how maternal care mm-hmm. has effects that stay with you for a lifetime. Yeah. And must have thought back of it and said, mm-hmm. some, somebody volunteered right. to look after me. So this is the this is the interesting escape from poverty. There's a really good developmental economics book by Angus Deaton called The Great Escape, right? It's like named after that movie, The Great Escape. <laughs> but it's about escaping poverty. And one of the, the best ways, and Amartya Sen writes about this too, one of the best ways of escaping poverty is through the mother, right? So if the mother's educated and healthy, kids are inevitably educated and healthy. And, you know, first of all, if the mother's alive, then the children are better off. And so if you can create programs and create societies that actually value the health and well-being of a mother, 
then there there are effects around the mother that then can actually influence society. For example, right? I mean, so just like the the example I gave, right? So if you have a healthy mother, right, and and this has all been uh, traced back to you know sort of developmental biology, right? So mm -hmm. you have a healthy mother who can first of all develop a healthy fetus, right, and brain development is, is there, and you know gray matter is is intact. Then you have a healthy baby who can go to school, who can be best breastfed and probably doesn't get sick, doesn't get diarrhea and doesn't die. Um, that kid can then provide for his family, right? That kid can then create his own family that is educated and healthy and happy. And that has knock-on effects that have, if, if you have a, an entire community that has healthy mothers, then you can see how I mean, th this is talking about it in a very instrumental sort mm. of product productivity way, but healthy babies basically create a labor force for society and a foreign economy. But that's not, you know, the only way to think about this. There are also just very basic moral reasons to provide people with the care that's available, right? So I think that's how... That's how your uncle thought about it. I, know, that's, I don't even think that's how he thought about it. I think that's how I originally thought about it. And so through this conversation, we talked about these things. And we saw that we had common interests, but maybe thought about it in different ways. I think for my uncle, it was very personal and emotional, mm -hmm. right? As it is for me. But um, for him, it was like, I miraculously survived this. So mm -hmm. uh, the great escape for our family, to go back to that reference, is it was lucky, right? My uncle didn't have a mother. And when my mother died, sorry, my, from my grandmother died from familial stories from that time, mm -hmm. everything kind of fell apart. My mother still deals with issues of abandonment from that time. You know, the, the family fell apart, things fell apart. And for my uncle, this particular uncle, at that time with specific circumstances, his grandmother, so my great grandmother, who was 85 at the time, was able to actually take care of him and provide that motherly presence. Which is remarkable in any context around the world, really. Right, right. Yeah, but, but even more so in that particular setting. Yeah, just very, very remarkable. And I think his success in life can be traced directly back to the love of his his grandmother, who was Mata Jaykor, who, who we named the, the clinic after. So in a way, all of this is an homage to that motherly love, right? Mm -hmm. And in a, you know, to not talk about it in terms of like neoliberal productivity, we think that if we can just allow that opportunity to be present, then we provide opportunity for many, many people and for the improvement of society and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, so, yeah. so now you have this two-room clinic, is it, in, mm -hmm. in a rural Rajasthan? Mm -hmm. And it has a huge catchment area. I was I was mind boggled when you told me how many villages it serves. Mm -hmm. What what was the number? So there are 558 villages. Yeah. And according to the 2011 census, which is the last one, there are around 80,000 women of childbearing age in this catchment area. And they're all in your catchment area. And they're all in our catchment area. But there are a few like deceptive things about that. So India is really weird in a lot of ways, and like yeah, it's kind of it, it defies. Um, reasonable bounds of concept quantities right so <laughs> yes. so our catchment area is pretty small it's a 25 kilometer radius around this village but within that catchment area there are this many villages 
So it's rural, it's remote, but there's there are like 1.2 billion people in India. So this is you know what happens in India. You you take out a chunk of land and there's a ton of people in it. Yeah. Um, and in reality, we've we've set that catchment area for administrative purposes and you know just to kind of think about what we're doing. But if somebody comes to us outside of that catchment area, we're not going to turn them down. Um, you mentioned that one of the key determinants of whether or not somebody will will come to your clinic which offers free maternal health care really is whether they have a car because mm. talk to me talk to me about that what is yeah. it that makes people decide to come to this particular clinic yeah so the basic idea uh, behind this clinic is that we wanted to reduce barriers to care right And one of the big barriers to care is just a geographical barrier to care. Mm -hmm. So if you live in a in a remote village near the border, and we're in a border area, it's hard for you to get to that village, to the city, which is more inside the country. And it's only about 50 kilometers away, the big city with the big hospitals. Uh, but that can be a day's journey or more uh, if you have to ride the bus or if you don't have enough money for the bus. Yeah. So so geography uh, is, is a big barrier. Along with that is... Um, a money barrier right so if you can't pay for transportation then you won't have access and so having a rural clinic kind of cuts that down for all of these villages in that area uh, reduces the amount of travel but there's also social barriers to care in addition to the distance and the cost a barrier to getting care for rural low-income or low caste or whatever um, qualities of whatever different disadvantage exists for for this woman, you know, part of part of the barrier to care is the way you're treated in a city, right? The foreignness of the city, the lack of support, you know, people looking out for you if you go to the city alone. So generally you have to travel with somebody, either it's your husband or a relative, or often we'll get groups of women who want to get care together. But having our clinic in a village, in a familiar setting, in a familiar cultural setting, and have it be a friendly place, actually is a, is a big reason why many women come to us mm -hmm. because they don't have to go to the city. Mm -hmm. And also, a lot of lower income, low social status women don't get treated very well when they go to a, a government hospital or a private hospital. Um, and one of our ethos is to be a woman-centered environment, right? So we want to treat everybody as if, you know, they were a relative of ours, basically, somebody that we really care for. So we really pride ourselves in creating that kind of kind of atmosphere and um, those things all lower barriers to care so that's one of the one of the key pillars of your of your clinic really mm -hmm. is this women-centered approach can you paint a picture for us of what that actually looks like what what is a woman-centric environment in that particular setting i think the first thing is actually just welcoming people and making them feel comfortable uh -huh. um, little things like so in rural india privacy isn't you know a big thing so providing a private place for th this woman to talk to her doctor and express her concerns without having her husband around or her or other other men around or other people around right just to allow her to ask questions and be informed of things is that something that the women are particularly keen on if you say that privacy isn't such a familiar occurrence mm -hmm. in their everyday how do they react to the opportunity of talking to a doctor just by themselves i think they really enjoy it yeah, yeah. environments and contexts are very different but i think there's a lot of similarity with people around the world 
And I think, you know, things like this is like if we enjoy privacy here, they're probably going to enjoy privacy there. And I've definitely found this to be true. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if you're a woman talking about uh, gynecological and obstetric health, you're probably not going to want to do that in front of a man, right? Yeah. You know, here, I mean, even here where you have male gynecologists and all this kind of stuff, still I think women would rather have a, a, a female doctor that they go to just for comfort. Well, they certainly want a doctor that they can trust. Mm, exactly. And so sometimes privacy is just the, the vehicle towards exactly. that. Yeah. So it's about building trust. And then we do, you know, one of the first things that we do there, and this has been sort of practice that's developed over a number of years of doing this, is, you know, when we register women in, we sit with them and their family and do an intake interview. So yeah, we'll just ask about their family, about where they're from, what's what state they're in. And, and these intake interviews are done by our local director, who's actually my cousin, mm-hmm. who is in his 50s. He's about as old as my uncle mm-hmm. who started this whole thing. And, um, and he's a local farmer and he has this way, this like folksy way with people. And he's able to put people at ease. And I think that's, a, you know, that's something that would never happen in a hospital in, in the village. Sure. Or sorry, in, in the in town. The city. Or yeah. in the city. Just that sort of personal touch. And then we make sure that everybody gets what they need. So if you need to go to a hospital to get uh, your ultrasound or certain tests done or whatever medicine you need, we just make sure that all that happens. And then we see people more regularly. So we, we call people back every two weeks throughout their pregnancy from the day they come in. If they live a little bit further away than every month, but we sort of monitor them through their care. And then we do very personalized care for complicated pregnancies and these kinds of things that in terms of like following up and making sure they get the best options, mm-hmm. all that folds into being a woman-centered place. Yeah. What are the other pillars mm-hmm. of, your, oh, man. of your house? I think an important thing for me as a you know a social scientist and as someone who wants to measure our impact and to do things not in a haphazard way um, but based on evidence you know is is that this work is evidence-based right so that means that we do things that have been tested elsewhere we adapt things to our context but then we also measure what we do and we keep records and that was a a big organizational sort of transition when i first got there um, is, you know, keeping records and, and putting in systems like that. Um, what do you think you will do with that information? Is there an evaluation process where you say, okay, I've measured this, we need to tweak it? Yeah, I think, I mean, we, so yes, we do have that, but it's always a work in progress, right? So a lot of this has been, because this is so grassroots and it's run essentially by locals, was like a cultural shift. And there's also a cultural shift for me, learning how to implement these systems in that situation. And I've gotten better at it, and they've gotten better at it, and I think organizationally we're getting better at it. So far it's been pretty straightforward though. It's it's measuring who comes in, their socioeconomic background, right? So we do like a socioeconomic survey, measuring you know what the outcomes are, baby's weight, the mother's health, and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's kind of stuff we capture, and, and that's easy to see the outputs. So that's pretty straightforward. What's a little bit more difficult, but more interesting and, and I think more important is to think about how we can actually measure our wider impact yeah. or, or the meaning of this 
small operation within the context of like Indian healthcare. Yeah, and I would love to get a little bit more into that because I think what you mm. said earlier about the importance of women within their communities mm. for the health of generations to come is something that is in many ways I imagine at, at the heart of how you see this place now, the plans you have for mm. it going forward. But what sort of markers would you be looking for just thinking ahead of quantifying or or at least establishing the ripple effects of this of this service that you're offering this has actually been a there's been a lot of soul searching and thinking about this over the years and i think when we first started you know we had these grand notions of oh this is what the maternal mortality is in this area in this district of rajasthan and let's you know find all these high risk pregnancies and give them care and then reduce the maternal mortality risk The reality is, like now, having taken a second degree in global health delivery and understanding epidemiology a little bit, is that it's it's going to be impossible to attribute any change in maternal, like population level maternal mm -hmm. mortality, to our little operation. Mm -hmm. So you start thinking about things differently, right? And, and then you think about things like whose responsibility is it to provide healthcare, to provide access to safe delivery and and antenatal care, the stuff that we're trying to do. And, you know, the reality is that an, it's not really the place of an NGO to provide this, mm -hmm. right? It's the, it's, it's the state's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that it, this is especially the case in India where this stuff is written in the constitution, right? India is supposed to provide or like provide access to uh, care. And there are, there are laws around this as well. The reality is that it, it doesn't, but the intention is there and the stated purpose is there, and, and this is like a matter of human and, and civil rights in India, as it is, I think, globally. So in that context, what can we do to help that along? And so the idea came, you know, like, we get these people who come to us who are desperate for care, right, at that individual local level. So the services that we're providing are important. And it's like, even if we can't measure a population level impact we know that we're doing good by providing this low-income woman with a complicated pregnancy the otherwise expensive care that she wouldn't have been able to get you know mm -hmm. um, so these things bankrupt families yeah right? so they're individual level changes really so individual level changes are, are very important yeah but then you know, where the soul searching happened is how do we use this platform to actually make bigger change yeah. from our position? And there are kind of two ways that I think we can do this, and this is what we're moving towards. One is through just straight advocacy, being advocates. You know, these are pathologies of power, and it's like we need to address power in order to change things. And then we have to think, you know, how do you become a good advocate for these things how do you become a good activist mm -hmm. in other words and for me and i think for us we have this platform and i think the best way to do it is to do it through evidence yeah right so now what i think we're doing is pilot testing ideas healthcare delivery ideas and doing rigorous research around them evaluation projects knowing that we're not going to have this population level impact but we can see what works in our context and a lot of this stuff is very context specific and then not just writing a research paper and publishing it and then and then leaving it 
but actually communicating this to local people, village leaders, local women, local politicians, and actually seeing if we can impact local policy and doing that all within the goals of the government, right? And the government and governmental goals in India accord with what we believe, right? Mm-hmm. They want they also want to improve maternal health, they also want to improve child health, they also want to increase access and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So and so where that has led us led us to now in a way that accords with our original purpose. You know, our original purpose was to provide care to vulnerable and low-income mothers in this rural area. And we still want to do that. But it's like there are still people who can't make that trip from their village to our village. There are still people who, for whatever reason, are stuck in their homes or stuck in their villages. There are people who are transient. You know, they're, you know the, the Roma people originate from Rajasthan, and those origin, original people are still there. They don't really have homes. They kind of yeah. go through on caravans. Live a nomadic life. They're li- they live a nomadic life. They're also sex workers, right? They're homeless people. They're migrant workers. There are all kinds of people here who need health care who don't get it. Mm-hmm. And... These are all delivery problems, and these are all problems of policy because policy can't access these people the way health policy is conceived of now. Yeah. So our current program is to try to take a step further towards women who can't come in, right? So the first step we took was to just build a rural clinic. The next step we want to take is to actually go to houses where there might be a vulnerable woman who won't be able to get to us for whatever reason and then see if we can get them care. And the theory that we're working with now is that if we can go to villages, go house to house, and do a a mental health screen for women in that household who might be pregnant or who have just delivered, then, you know, if we can find incidents of depression or anxiety, then the assumption is that that's related to some sort of social vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you a little bit about the mental health side of it in mm-hmm. a second, but I, I just want to reiterate this this ripple effect, really. Mm-hmm. I'm a social network researcher, and so I think that is a sort of perspective on human relationships, on how information dissipates across relationship further and further away from the source of a particular experience. Mm-hmm is one that actually makes me quite an optimistic person. Um, and I wonder whether, whether you agree with that, because it is understanding that sometimes the change that you can produce within one individual translates into lots of other little changes that, that travel through their relationship networks and ultimately, I guess, manifests in changed norms, changed ac- expectations about what certain experiences in life like childbirth could or even should look like changed power dynamics between mothers and daughters, husbands and wives. And I think even though you might not be able to measure it, although I th- I'm sure it could be quantified if it, if it were done mm-hmm. in, a, in a sort of, I guess, social, psychological, empirical way, mm-hmm. even though we can't necessarily measure it in this particular instance, it's so important to recognize that even though you might not reach millions of people directly, mm-hmm. By reaching a select few, you indirectly reach so many others. And personally, I think that is something that that is a hu- that can motivate a lot of people to get involved with something like this. Yeah, I've I mean, talked to people who say, "Oh, you know, it doesn't make a difference what I choose to buy or what I choose to eat or mm-hmm. how I choose to treat people because my neighbor doesn't, and so you know, it doesn't make a difference." But that is um, ultimately, I quite a nihilistic and 
depressing it's a, view on the world. It's a cynical view, and I, I think it's, I mean, I can see where it comes from, right? Especially in a place like here, mm-hmm. you know, where where Brexit happened, and in the U.S. where, you know, elections don't go the way the majority of people want mm-hmm. them to go. Um, but I think, I, so I wholeheartedly believe in the way you conceive of it. And the idea that you can make a small change that ripples into something bigger is it's my experience right yeah it's the it's the actions of Mata J core extending down to me and i think at last count there are like 200 something people out there who are descendants of Mata J core yeah right exactly. it's like direct relatives yeah because your uncle had a particular well your uncle's mom had a particular experience mm-hmm. that not just translated into how you see the world but also eventually right. helped raise 200 or more babies in rural India. <laughs> over a thousand babies now. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, over a thousand yeah. babies. So 100% right. So just in terms of the the family narrative, right? It's my gra- it's my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, and my great-grandmother went to this backwater of Rajasthan um, back in the 1920s. And then, you know, history proceeds. And then at the age of 85, my great-grandmother takes care of my gra- my uncle, my uncle immigrates to Canada. I mean, as as does my mom at the same time. And, um, you know, I have no conception of what India is or what this village is. I just hear stories. I went to India once as a child, but, you know, I had no idea I would ever have a, have a career path that would take me back mm. to this rural village where they came from. But that's what happened. And now the effect is that other people are coming other people are interested in global health. People are contributing to our programs, all from Canada, from the UK, from the US. Uh, other people from across India are coming. And then we're delivering babies, and those mothers have babies who are attached to us. Mm-hmm. Who You can draw a straight line from all of that back to Mata J. Kaur. Yeah, that's right. It's incredible. And it is it is so important to mm-hmm. put this into the context of an interaction of individual level mm-hmm. processes like personal norms and values and traditions yeah. with wider sociological contextual effects like norms and expectations and structural infrastructure yeah. infrastructure provisions and so that brings us back to to um the 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 second branch of mm-hmm. mjk that you are you are now at the process of establishing which has to do with mental health and mm-hmm. the psychosocial processes of mental health mm-hmm. yeah so thinking of this sort of narrow focus leading to wider change has definitely influenced this idea around mental health for us in terms of reach and policy and and you know the type of activism that we want to do so if we can i mean right now out of that 558 villages we have selected around 40 villages and recruited a number of local women who are all remarkable so we have 10 local women who most of them are young Half of them are mothers, half of them are not. Um, Is that deliberate? No, it's just the way it happened. Mm-hmm. And they're all interested in what we were trying to do. Okay. And they all showed an aptitude for, for counseling. So, so tell me how you train them or what you train them in. So the training is ongoing. And I'm actually going to be going back to India tomorrow to continue with this process. But um, the recruitment started in April with just a community outreach program where we talk to communities about mental illness. 
uh, around pregnancy and childbirth because this is for a lot of people new stuff right yeah. at least the way it's conceived of in these terms and so it was sort of a let us learn about how these how these communities talk about mental illness how they think about it and then let them learn from us what we have in mind and through that process these 10 women emerged um, so my cousin Sherry was kind of the lead on this part of the project and then when we had these women selected we actually kind of selected I think it was over 20 at first and we the idea was we put them through a counseling training program and then select the people who have the aptitude for this because not everybody can be a, a counselor and um, the, the first training session it was intensive five to seven days of training on just basic principles of counseling so you know for women in this context being able to talk a certain way being able to elicit what the issues are without giving concrete solutions you know all these kinds of things are very new uh, for me as well I was I was learning a lot <laughs> during this as well I was kind of undergoing my own training so we were we were training them in these skills and then we had them actually just talk to patients and kind of kind of practice the interpersonal communication mm-hmm. uh, skills that you need. And um, so they've been practicing these skills all summer. The next level is to train them on a very specific community-based lay counselor intervention that's been adopted by the WHO called the Thinking Healthy Program, mm-hmm. which is based in cognitive behavioral therapy. And basically you identify women who are suffering from moderate anxiety or depression and you register them in this program and then you have counselors kind of go to their house very regularly through their through their pregnancy and talk about things like the mother's relationship with her household members mm-hmm. right and identifying points of conflict or or unhealthy sort of relationships or behaviors and then coming up with strategies to improve them so that's one area, that's one realm of the intervention, the relationship with people in the household. The other one is the mother's relationship with the baby after the baby is born. So that interaction is, is very important. And in our setting, um, we're going to see what happens over the next year of implementation. But in our setting, an important part of that relationship has to do with the gender of the baby. Mm-hmm. Right? So a lot of people might not know, but in northern India there's a a preference for boys and that actually manifests into higher mortality for girls Mm -hmm. and this happens in a number of ways one of them is there's sex selective abortion so if you find out you have a girl you abort it and then you know so there just aren't they're actually missing girls is the term that MRTSN (laughs) uses Um, the other way is a little bit less intentional but it's almost as dangerous and it's just neglect Mm -hmm. right so if you have a boy who gets sick you tend to people will tend to take them to the hospital more Mm -hmm. often or more frequently. If you have a girl who's sick, you tend to not do that. And so uh, the mortality rate for girls is higher. So just developing that bond with the baby should have better outcomes for the mother and the baby. Like a prophylactic effect in a way. Prophylactic effect, yep. And there's a lot of child development evidence behind you know, the nurturing the baby. and Yeah, attachment development, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And and then the other pillar of this is... um, the mother's personal health. Yeah. Where we talk about, you know, what kind of stuff do you do you, as a mother personally need after delivery or before delivery. So those are the three realms that we're going to train these women in. And um, we're going to train them in other things too, like how to do surveys, how to screen 
villages and so it's got it's all like a lot of skill development which i think yeah. will benefit these women in other ways too um again the ripple effect <laughs> the ripple effect continues yep and the reason why we were using lay counselors in the first place is because there's a massive treatment gap right so in india the the estimates are probably way off but i think the scale of what i'm going to say will give an impression there's like something like 1.2 billion people in india and although the number is probably wrong they estimate there's something like 6000 clinical uh mental health uh, clinicians in the, in the country so it's, there's like not enough to to really do anything right so there's a huge need there's a huge need and because you also said that mental health is one of the key factors in, in in mortality among women of childbearing age it is the biggest killer of women in india so there's new epidemiological evidence that shows us the, the extent of mental illness mm -hmm. and so one of the one of the biggest killers of women the biggest killer of women in india is suicide yeah And it's uh, the biggest killer of women between the age 14 and... 14 and... 14 and, and 29. Okay. So prime mm -hmm. childbearing yes. marriage age. And, you know, the, those are the ages when people get married and have children. So these things are very much tied together. So in a way, you could almost think of uh, female suicide, in a, in a, especially in rural India, as something that could be very tied to maternal mortality, right? Yeah. And, but these numbers are kind of... They're separate categories, yeah. so they're not um, considered the same way in the statistics. But I think in in the in considering the social context, they should be considered yeah. in the same thing. So, and and the work that you do in the mm -hmm. clinic, I guess, reflects exactly that interrelationship between physical antenatal care and and pre and postnatal mental health care. Yeah, this is where the gaps are in programs and policies. Right? Yeah, and you know what we're now trying to explore and given the numbers there are just there's no possibility of developing enough clinicians to be able to provide mental health care and also clinicians might not be the best people to deal with this kind of mental illness because it's all socially conditioned and the real experts are people from the context themselves absolutely right? and, and as a psychologist i think that is something i, I really need to stress is that our western conceptions of what you know, diagnostic criteria are of depression and anxiety mm -hmm. does not necessarily easily translate right. into into an Eastern or South, um, Southeast Asian context. Right. And so to have the WHO provide a sort of mm -hmm. assessment framework and, and then locally trained people who can listen out for certain markers right. uh, is, is crucial. Right. It actually brings me to something that I wanted to ask you as well. Because you, you emphasize several times how you make a great effort in, in having this be a project that is sustained by local people. Mm -hmm. It's not you guys who, who are based and financed in, in Canada coming in and wanting to change a system on your own and then sort of imposing a certain worldview and ethos onto a population. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you train people locally, you... You, you want this to be something that the community becomes invested in. Mm -hmm. Is this something that emerged throughout? Was this part of the design? How, how do you relate to I that? I think this was something that I wanted to ensure from the very beginning. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is uh, international development is very important and bilateral aid is very important. So I'm not going to 
you know, denigrate that in any way. But this was a lesson I learned from working in Ottawa, mm-hmm. right? So aid is important, but a lot of international development projects are one-offs and they're run by international experts and people come in and drop in and do something and leave and then they don't really know whether it worked or not or mm-hmm. whether it was the right intervention or not. So right from the beginning, it was very important for me to just go and be there and understand what the local needs were. And I would say that it probably took realistically two years. You learned the language as well. To learn the language, mm-hmm. learn local customs and speak to be able to live in the village comfortably. And to understand my team, right? And to understand how to communicate and understand local women. All that was like a really kind of sometimes painful cultural experience mm-hmm. uh, and learning curve. How did they relate to you? Uh, This local looking guy who was clearly not from here. Yeah, I think I was a I was an oddity for a long time. Yeah. Um, there, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know. It, it was, I mean, being Canadian is very different than being rural Indian. I think one of the biggest things is understanding social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we all have our social hierarchies and there's definitely one in Canada, but it's just more stark and and um, and rigid in India, especially in northern India, in my part of India. So, little things like me going to the village and interacting with young low-income women, right? That you know, it seems obvious now that that would potentially be fraught, mm-hmm. but it wasn't obvious to me then because mm-hmm. I was an idiot, yeah. right? And it's just like you have to learn these things. Yeah. Um so it took it took probably two years for me to just gain local trust. So your co- your cousin works in the in the village, right? So he's a farmer you said. Was mm-hmm. he your guide? Absolutely. Did he give you 100%. feedback? Yeah. So I mean none of this works without him. Yeah. So his name is Balwant Kaler, affectionately known as Bant Baji. So Bant Baji Baji means brother. Bant is short for Balwant. So Bantpaji, he basically just had social capital. He, I think he's like a case study for social capital. If somebody wanted to study social capital, get in touch. <laughs> yeah, come to come to our village and um, and see him in action. And part of that social capital was translating what I was trying to do. This like weird foreign guy who looks local but doesn't know anything, and he has some idea about what he wants to do. And my cousin was able to explain it to people, which is very important. And then we, when we actually had programmatic plans and, and things we wanted to implement, he was able to let me know where the holes were in the plan and why it wouldn't work or what would work, right? Mm-hmm. Or, and what alternatives could be. So I'll give you like a, a little example of that. In 2015, we did a population survey to understand the barriers and facilitators to care for low-income women in our catchment area. So I had this whole study design planned and... I had this protocol and I, you know, originally I wanted to go to the villages and go to every single house and interview every single person. And with the numbers that I wanted, that would have taken a lot of money and it probably would have taken over a year or mm-hmm. something. And so I showed this protocol to him and he's a farmer. He has, has no like formal education. And then after laughing at me and calling me an idiot for a few days, <laughs> we kind of worked out what would work. Uh-huh. And, um, He's like, instead of going house to house, why don't we talk to the local community health workers? They're called ASHAs. They have health registries. They record the names and houses of every single pregnant woman 
and we could have access to that and, and it would just save time. Yeah. So that's what we did. You know, we got like local permission from the government to talk to Asha's to look at their registries and rather than going house to house, we could actually go straight to the house and, and actually sample from the list rather than sample from the houses, right? Yeah. So it just so it was local knowledge right there that changed everything and made it feasible. Yeah. And you know, it was it was an interesting process to you know, it was a back and forth. So at first Bant Baji's suggestion was um, rather than going house to house, why don't you just make an announcement, have everybody come to the center of the village, and then you can talk to them all. And then I had to explain to him the concept of random sampling. Self-selection and, and, effects. And, and, and self-selection, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, how do I explain random sampling? Like, how do you explain that? Yeah. And then I thought, oh, uh, it's like a lottery. I was like, we have to have a lottery. We have to pick people randomly. Yeah. So this, it was this back and forth, and together we came up with this protocol that worked. And that's like a microcosm of this whole thing. We have an idea, but Baji shoots it down and makes an amendment and then makes it even better. Early on in the in our implementation, when I was like, we really need to find out who's coming to us, um, whether these are in fact low-income women, who we want, who, who's our target population. Because we didn't really know, right? People were coming, they, some people look poor, some people who are poor look wealthy, because like in our part of Rajasthan, sometimes the poorer you are, the more jewelry you have. It's that kind of place. But also, we just didn't have evidence of it, right? So I said, let's implement a socioeconomic questionnaire, a survey for every single person. And he's the one who implements it. And that's what's turned into those intake interviews that are so folksy and, mm. and, and become sort of this woman-centered thing. And he went through each question to, first of all, see if it was relevant. You know, because I would have questions like, how much land do you own? And he would say things like, well, it doesn't matter how much land you own. If somebody, ha- it looks like they have a lot of land, but they're in a very large extended family, then per capita of that mm-hmm. household, it could be very small. Mm-hmm. And then effectively, they could be very poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked through these things together. And it's the same thing with this mental health thing. How do we recruit women? He has an input. He, his fingerprints aren't all of it. And when I was in Ottawa, working on these programs in different parts of the world, I did not see how that could be possible like yeah. how you could have that level of local knowledge influence th- these programs yeah you are a true broker then in this whole context because you bring your university educated western random sampling perspective and you take that into the setting where you need to translate it you need yeah. to code switch essentially and that can be something that is quite a strenuous experience on the one hand but it can also be something hugely enriching on the other hand because we work with associations right creativity in many ways innovation is the product of combining things that aren't usually combined and in many ways that's exactly what you're doing as the go-between or the broker yeah and so what i'm trying to do now is be able to capture the innovation that comes from this mm-hmm. this mental health program we're going to implement it we're going to rigorously evaluate it. Bantpaji is going to have his influence all the way through and we're going to capture that. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, and the mental health is actually a pretty good example of a specific instance where we can potentially have activism power, right? Because I think it was just last year, the government of India signed into law a mental health act, right? Which was really cool conceptually because it acknowledged the problem of mental illness. And it set laws that people needed to get care if they had a mental illness. But the whole, the way that the law is designed is that it kind of emphasizes 
clinical care, right? So like the kind of Western biomedical way of doing, mm-hmm. you know, psychology and psychiatry, which is probably not going to work for a mother who's who has depression but is stuck in her village. Unless she has a psychotic episode, she's probably not going to seek out psychiatric care. Yeah. And you know, if she does, what the psychiatrist has to offer probably won't help very much. Um, because it is in so many ways intertwined with the social structure around her. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so what she needs is a psychosocial intervention. Yeah. And a psychiatrist in a city somewhere is not going to be able to do no. that. And, you know, if it's a, if it's something else, like a psychologist, she, she's probably not going to be able to leave her house to go to a continuous long-term therapy session. So there's this opportunity where, where there's this law and there's political capital behind this and there's interest in it. And the law is signed and it's being enforced, but it's still evolving. You know, the, the nature of this Mental Health Act and how it actually is implemented is evolving. So we can find ways of doing mental health in an effective, meaningful way, or we find ways that it doesn't work. Mm. These are lessons we can share with our local government yeah. who are responsible for implementing yeah. this law, right? So the, this is kind of like, yeah, things are becoming really tangible. So if the activism is becoming an increasingly important part to wrap up then where do you see this going this whole clinic and the wider mission that it clearly has so i have grand dreams for mata j mm-hmm. i would like it to become a healthcare delivery and innovation center so i want to do more things like pilot testing different ideas while delivering a basic package of care based on what we've learned right yeah. so we have our basic clinical care and our childbirth stuff that is very important because it gives us social capital it also provides much needed care for people who are very vulnerable Mm -hmm. and in the situation where they need it like quite honestly these thousand babies that we've delivered i don't know what they would have done unless we were there so that's very important to us and it's very tangible and meaningful and then based on top of that if we can actually take steps out and we sort of beyond that um, mental health child health is a big hole in the system keep expanding that way but base it in these sort of trials that we do and implementation research programs that Mm -hmm. we do so that's how i want it to continue one of the interesting things about global health that is very different from international development is that these problems aren't only in places like rural rajasthan right yes they also exist in the uk they also exist in canada yeah among vulnerable populations. Vulnerable populations exist everywhere. They're beyond borders. So we want to see if we can implement these in different settings and learn about how these programs work in different settings. And then I just want to see if we can be the node, you know, or the nexus of people who are interested in global health coming in and providing their expertise and spreading the gospel. To have a policy branch of it as well in in some ways. Oh yeah, policy branch of it. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the mission is to empower women through health. Mm-hmm. And, and thank you so much for sharing with us thank where you. you have gone with this so far. <laughs> <laughs>